You're listening to Plenary Session. This week on Plenary Session, we have a few things for you. First, a listener has asked me several questions, and I'm going to read them aloud on the podcast and do my very best to respond to them. Next, I'm going to talk about something that's outside of medicine, the Boeing 737 MAX, and news stories that suggest the very cozy relationship between Boeing executives and the FAA, and the revelation that the FAA asked Boeing to essentially inspect their own plane. Uh, And what does this mean for the other regulatory agencies that are supposed to be protecting the public, such as the US FDA? Finally, I'm going to talk about a very interesting paper entitled Deleterious Germline Mutations are a Risk Factor for Neoplastic Progression Among High-Risk Individuals Undergoing Pancreatic Surveillance. This is one of those papers that reminds you to never let the data get in the way of the story you wish to tell. And finally, I have an interview with none other than Eli Esty. Dr. Esty is a renowned leukemia expert at Seattle Fred Hutch Cancer Center. He has over 40 years of experience as an oncologist taking care of leukemia patients, and he's going to share his insights into the recent approvals in leukemia, the quote-unquote renaissance of drugs in the leukemia space, and some advice for young trainees on how they should be thinking about what they want to get out of their careers. So you won't want to miss this. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, Go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us. Patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose. And supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon we could use your support. First up, I want to plug something that I just heard about. This is something that is going to be launched by two people whom I have tremendous respect for, Amit Sarpatwari and Aaron Kesselheim from the Harvard Portal Medical Group. Now, I've said before on this podcast that there are few groups doing high-quality research at the intersection of policy, law, and drug regulation, and Portal is top among them. Uh, This group has decided to correct some widespread misconceptions, and starting March 26th, they are launching a free online course taught to you by Harvard faculty. You don't even have to pretend that you are on the sailing team to get taught by these Harvard faculty members. This is entitled The FDA and Prescription Drugs. It's a new free online course. It's going to be launched through Harvard X, which is a free um, website that allows you to watch the lectures. It's a six-week self-paced schedule, and guests include none other than former FDA Commissioner Margaret Hamburg. So it isn't easy to get into top schools these days. You either have to be a robust athlete or at least take a picture in a boat and pretend you are while your parents bribe university officials. But now, for free, you can get the equivalent of a Harvard education without having to spend all that money. Uh, Of course, bribery is just in the news recently, and the good old-fashioned way of getting into top schools remains the same, donating a building on campus. But in all seriousness, I think listeners of this podcast will enjoy this course, and so I will also be signing up, and I'll tell you what I think.
Next up, questions from a medical student. This is um, a little note that we got here at Plenary Session. It goes like this. I am a medical student and I have a question for you as I followed your plenary sessions. Maybe a topic you want to tackle sometime. While I appreciate the need to be critical consumers of evidence, the rate at which new data emerges makes it difficult to keep up. That's absolutely right. We are not all so well-trained in critical appraisal and do turn to guidelines and key abstract findings to guide decision-making. My question is, what is the purpose of peer review, impact factor, etc., if these so-called high-profile studies are all flawed? How do we shift our culture in medicine to be less driven by publication quality and false measures of quality uh, to research that has integrity and tries to make a real difference in patient lives and not physician careers? How do we get more people like you sitting at the editorial boards of journals like JAMA and New England Journal to drive this change? Wow. Um, I guess I, um, I'll take this in turn. I guess I would say that part of my motivation in making this podcast um, is that although I sympathize and although I agree that it will never be the case that the average practicing physician will have the time to take a deep dive on every single topic that they encounter in their practice and they will out of necessity have to trust guidelines or professional groups or organizations. That's inevitable. That's got to happen because we don't have the time and practice to, to check everything. At the same time, I do think that, one, and one of the purposes of this podcast is to make you, I hope, a better reader of the literature, to improve the way in which you critically appraise the literature, to improve the way in which you critically think about new products. And I do think we are coming to a time where there will be no one out there to do it for you. Um, we do see routinely in the top medical publications that I talk about on this show, um, errors, uh, poor reason, bad endpoints, bad design, bad control arms that get passed along. And I think it's up to us to take a critical look at that. And that's an understanding that we won't be able to do that for everything. But the more we do that for a few things, I think that's better than nothing. And the more we're able to communicate how we feel when we do take a deep dive, whether through Twitter or blogs, I think we're starting to do a service for the community and maybe shift the longstanding dynamic of power, which has long been in the hands of journals and journal editors and a handful of accredited professional societies to a broader coalition of physicians and researchers appraising in real time a more democratic way to think about this research. I think. I think a lot of things are aligning that are moving in that direction. Okay, so next question. What is the purpose of peer review, impact factor, et cetera? I think these are, as you know, they're very imperfect surrogates for quality. There's a lot of bad science out there. And there are some journals where it's almost exclusively bad science. You very rarely read an article that has merit. Um, at the same time, merely being in a top medical journal does is no assurance that the article is robust or sound. And so I think... The more articles are supposed to change our practice, um, the closer a lens we have to apply in looking at them. At the same time, I do want to stress to this listener that I, I, I do not believe that all high-profile studies are flawed. I happen to likely selectively choose the ones in which flaws exist to kind of illustrate some teaching points on this podcast and also to maybe keep it interesting. Um, but there are a number of studies that I think are well-done, reliable studies that guide the practice of medicine. Um, and I guess when I can counter those from time to time, I'll take a moment to just mention that, although that mention will likely be brief. Um, what do good studies have in common? They have uh, 
They tend not to be very restrictive in terms of inclusion criteria. They tend to test novel interventions against the best available standard of care. They tend to have robust blinding. Independent adjudication of endpoints are often performed through funds derived from non-conflicted groups, such as the Veterans Administration or the U.S. National Institutes of Health. Those tend to be the characteristics of really good studies, and there are many of them, uh, and they guide the practice of medicine uh, in all our clinics. The next question. <clears throat> How do we shift the culture in medicine to be less driven by quantity and false measures of quality to research that tries to make a real difference in the lives of people and not just the careers of those who do it? This is really a profound question, and I don't know if I have the answer for it. I mean, I think it's the key question. What are some things I've been thinking about lately? One thing I think about is that those of us who are in academics who are on this path, we need to write down goals that we have. What are the kind of external goals we have? What do we want to see accomplished? That can be different if you're a trialist versus if you are somebody who's a meta-researcher, as, as I kind of think of myself. Um, but whatever your goals are, you should be very clear about those goals. You should follow up and see if you're achieving those goals or if instead you are being seduced by merely publishing for the sake of publishing. And if you find yourself in that latter camp, that you find that you're not making headway on what you want to accomplish, um, you're not doing good science, you may just be bolstering your CV, I think perhaps you have a duty to resign. You have a duty to do something else. You should take your skill set and maybe just go out and practice medicine as best you can. Be a great doctor uh, and give up the academic side of things. Uh, give up trying to be a researcher. Um, I think that might be a, sort of a personal ethic one could apply. I think anyone in a position of power at a university has to really change the incentives. We cannot celebrate people for participating in bad, irreproducible, heavily biased science. If you're on a promotion and tenure committee, I don't think you can just look at the CV. You have to pull some papers and see what happened in this paper. If the person going up for promotion is the author of a New England Journal paper, and they may be the first, second, or third author, was it written by a medical writer, or did they actually write it? Did they do the analysis themselves? Did they have access to the data? Did they take responsibility for the analysis, or was it done by a third party? I think these are the kinds of questions people are going to have to ask. If they are someone who's had high-profile science publications, have those been replicated? If not, why not? Are there signs on someone's CV of, rampant gift authorship? Are they the middle author on many, 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 many papers? Are they the author on more papers than a human being could produce per annum? Uh, perhaps 70 or more publications per year. Uh, that gets to the point where it, I believe, is impossible for a person to meaningfully contribute to over 70 original articles a year. That's just not possible, even if one works very hard and is very smart. Is someone's entire career industry supported in the sense that they have no independent activity? They've never independently written an article. All of their articles are trials that someone else has written, the medical writer has written. I think these are the kinds of questions P&T committees must be asking. P&T committees, if they really want to shift this, 
They have to set new standards. They have to define promotion and tenure by what we want, which is science that makes a real difference in patient lives, as this student wisely notes. And people like John Ioannidis have written about different frameworks, a PQRST framework, which appeared in JAMA, which is one way in which we might sort of judge that. Um, we might judge people on the rate at which they make data transparent, the rate at which they provide data for others. Um, we might no longer penalize people for being the second to do something. If you replicate what someone else did, that should be given a lot more respect than it does in the current climate. I think the other thing that PNT committees must do is we must value actually being a good doctor and actually being a good teacher. And those skills and the ability to garner many, many grants those don't always go hand in hand. And it requires talking to someone's students or trainees to get a sense of whether or not they are a good physician, talking to their patients to get a sense of whether or not people like seeing this physician. Um, that's the kind of effort that it's gonna take. Finally, I think perhaps one of the major structural flaws at the university level is it isn't even just publications and it isn't even just results that drive careers, it is overwhelmingly the receipt of grants that have high indirect costs. In other words, grants where a large amount of money goes to the institution are highly valued and the people who are able to get those grants are highly sought after. And there are a number of instances where people who are bringing tremendous revenue to the institution are often now increasingly found to have engaged in different forms of bad behavior, and the university has repeatedly often turned a blind eye to that. And it's hard not to see the inherent conflict in the fact that that university is making hand over fist money from having this particular faculty member on staff. I think perhaps the best structural way to fix this problem is universities do need some support from federal agencies, but we do not need to tie that to the level of the individual person receiving a grant. And there are a whole bunch of other ways you can deliver that to universities. Um, and by, by severing that tie from the individual, these individuals will not get carte blanche, I think, at the university level. Okay, the last question is, how do we get more people like you sitting at the editorial boards of journals? Well, I don't sit at the editorial boards of any journal. And I guess I would say that I'm not entirely convinced that to achieve progress on these issues, we need to have a total change in the people who hold certain leadership positions. In other words, what I mean is, one may say, what will it take to get some people who hold sort of the views that I hold as the editor of the New England Journal, as the commissioner of the US Food and Drug Administration, as the director of the Oncology Drug Products Division? What I wish to suggest is, I don't think you need that necessarily. I think that it might be sufficient to get a critical mass of people in a field to start to think differently. I can speak more about my particular field, which is oncology. I fear we suffer from rampant, widespread groupthink. And this is not just at the level of the quote-unquote key opinion leaders, who, as Daryl Francis once said, are called that because their opinions are easily led by the industry, among others. Um, that's why they're the key opinion leaders, because you can lead their opinion very easily. Um, but we often find that such KOLs have very similar views. They repeat the same empty, unproven stock phrase assertions about drug development that have never been empirically tested. You know, very recently, we had 
a paper in the American Journal of Medicine, and this is just sort of one of the things people said a lot that no one thought to fact check. We fact checked, and it turned out that you know everyone was saying something wrong. What did we fact check? One of the things I had heard repeatedly was that academic researchers and the media disproportionately focus on the cost of pharmaceutical drugs in their coverage and their lamentations and don't focus more broadly on the drivers of healthcare cost overall. So we know that m- more healthcare dollars go into hospitals than go into pharmaceutical drugs, and yet all the articles universally lament the evil big bad pharma, but they're not talking enough about hospitals and doctor pay and you know all these other sorts of drivers of cost. And so I just asked myself, well, okay, um, is this factually the case? Is it the case that the news articles and academics, when they write papers about high costs of healthcare, are they disproportionately focusing on pharma? So we just collected systematically, searching for high healthcare costs kind of search terms, a bunch of articles that lamented high healthcare costs, and we just coded them as who are they pointing the finger at? Are they pointing the finger at everybody to some degree, pointing the finger at the industry, pointing the finger at uh, hospitals, point, et cetera, et cetera? And what we found was that it wasn't the case that the industry was disproportionately targeted. In fact, it was overall rather proportionate, if anything. Now, of course, you know, there's some funny things that you'd see that when physicians talk about healthcare costs, uh, they almost never implicate their own salaries as problematic. Okay, but you know, um, I think that's understandable. But they are, I think, throwing a lot of blame at academic medical centers and medical centers and hospitals and consolidation, as well as the prescription drug industry. Why do I tell this little anecdote? I just say that this is something that many people believed that was just factually untrue. And I hear so many assertions over and over again by many very smart people. And if you ask those people to tell you where they're getting that information, they often pause and realize that you know they haven't thought it through. Um, in order to make a major cultural change, I think it won't take much more than 10% or 15% of people calling out every time someone repeats an unproven you know, political slogan. I mean, and that's really what it is. It's kind of a slogan. Uh, And if you call out these slogans, I think enough people will start to realize that, whoa, you know, maybe they're not right. Um, So I'm not sure it will necessarily take a renaissance of leadership to achieve meaningful change, but it takes a critical mass of people. And I think that's why, you know, I try to do at least insofar what I'm capable of doing, which is, you know, conduct academic research and run this podcast and go out there in social media to the extent that uh, that I hope it's helpful to others. Um, and I am constantly reassured by the next generation who I think have potential to truly catalyze change and that sometimes it takes a generational change before you see real progress on some issues um, because some people's minds will never change and one simply has to wait for them to retire. Uh, which they will eventually. So thank you for your question. I hope that kind of answers it. I think it's a very tough question, and I I hope someday we can answer it better than that. The Boeing F-37 MAX. I think those of us who follow the news have been stunned by two recent quite similar plane crashes involving the same aircraft manufactured by Boeing. Um, In the intense coverage that's come out, one thing I think 
is quite illuminative of a broader problem. I'm just going to read you a section of an article that appeared in Vox. Quote, the crashes raise difficult questions about the Boeing-FAA relationship. The investigation lays bare the close relationship between the aircraft manufacturer and the FAA, according to the Times, as Boeing rushed to catch up with its competitor, Airbus. Managers pushed the agency's technical experts to hasten their work. More and more work was delegated back to Boeing, Gates reported. Quote, A former FAA safety engineer who was directly involved in certifying the MAX said that halfway through the certification process, quote, we were asked by management to reevaluate what would be delegated. Management thought we had retained too much at the FAA. End quote. quote, there was a constant pressure to reevaluate our initial decisions, end quote, the former engineer said, quote, and even after we had reassessed it, there was a continued discussion by management about delegating even more items down to Boeing Company, end quote. Even the work that was retained, such as reviewing technical documents provided by Boeing, was sometimes curtailed. Quote, there wasn't a complete and proper review of the documents, the former engineer added. Review was rushed to reach certain certification dates. FAA regulatory oversight has worked this way for years, and the U.S. has had a strong sterling record of aviation safety for much of that time, but the recent crashes and a fuller understanding of the role Boeing has played in regulating itself have brought concerns that have simmered for years to the fore. As Politico reported this week, lawmakers have fretted for a while about a culture of coziness between the FAA and aircraft manufacturers. The agency has at time referred to companies under its jurisdiction as customers. Okay, so what do I think is so important here? Um, this is a very clear analogy for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Now, I think when people talk about the concept of regulatory capture, which is increasingly discussed, it means when the regulators come to see their client, not as the public, but as the industry that they are regulating. And this is such an easy and natural temptation that can occur at any regulatory agency for the simple reason that the public, the people whom you're trying to protect, they're large, diffuse group of people, largely faceless, who you don't know, you don't see every day. But the industry you're trying to regulate, these are actual people who you're often interacting with very, very closely. It becomes so natural and easy to come to see that the person you want to please and satisfy is the industry. And there are a number of ways in which the FDA and the industry's relationship might be even cozier. One, the FDA, particularly at a division like the Oncology Drug Products Division, is not receiving the bulk of their revenue through taxpayer money, but rather through the direct user fees paid every time a drug is submitted for application. Now, we all want, I think, the industry to pay for, you know, the FDA to some degree. I would propose that it's done largely through taxation. But to have it linked as a direct user fee, I think, kind of creates the expectation that we're paying you for a service. It's your, you know, just as I submit $50 with my passport application, um, you know, I'm paying you $50 along with this. And that $50, I think, I don't feel like it entitles me to a passport, but I certainly expect my passport if my T's are crossed and my I's are dotted. Um, and similarly, the industry may come to feel like, you know, this is good enough data for us and surely for you, and we've paid our user fee, so go ahead and give us our drug approval, please. Um, you know, it kind of creates that expectation. The next thing I think that's important to talk about here is the need for independence. I've said over and over on this podcast that I think one of the major structural flaws of cancer clinical trials, who, which I am intensely critical of because of poor control arm, inappropriate use of crossover or excessive use of crossover when it was inappropriate, um, uh, 
patient population is incorrect. Um, drug dosing was incorrect. Dose reduction schemas were incorrect. All of these structural problems that you see in clinical trials, the so-called hardwired bias, why does that fundamentally happen? Well, the entity that's designing and conducting the study is the same entity that has billions of dollars in, at stake in the outcome of that study. And I have long been a proponent of shifting that authority to a third party. And I hope in time you'll see a broader proposal for that that we're trying to put together. At the same time, at the level of the FDA, among medical reviewers at the FDA, Jeff Bien and I found that when they leave the FDA, and about half do, 60% of the time they go to work for or consult for the biopharmaceutical industry. Um, if I knew I had a 60% chance of working someday at the University of Pittsburgh, I'll tell you what, I would take it easy on people from the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and that's the kind of, I think, structural bias that we see from sort of the revolving door of regulatory agencies. And then the other takeaway lesson is, it is very difficult to be critical of lax regulation until something bad happens. This is, you know, one of the greatest challenges. It, t it took this tragedy for people to start to ask these tough questions about Boeing FAA. In the history of drug regulation, it's taken several tragedies to force us to reevaluate drug regulation. We can just go back to 1906. You know, the original FDA bills were based at a time where what was being sold was essentially snake oil or worse, and it had adulterants and heavy metals and toxins, and it was sold with all sorts of miracle promises. Couple that with books like Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, and you had a profound movement for some regulation of food and drugs. Um, then in 1962, we had just gotten over the global tragedy of thalidomide, and the Kiefer-Harris amendments were passed, which allowed the FDA to have some authority for efficacy. One of the challenges with cancer medicine is that if a patient takes a cancer drug and something bad happens to that patient, people don't always attribute that to the drug. They may attribute it to the disease because after all, that person had cancer. And in spite of giving the drug, something bad happened rather than due to giving the drug. I'll give you just one recent example, venetoclax. Now, I talked about venetoclax in an earlier episode of this podcast where I faulted the FDA for giving drug approval to venetoclax in MDS on the basis of uncontrolled data. And I pointed out that this was a population that had a nine-month median overall survival. You don't need surrogate endpoints in that setting. You can run a randomized trial, and you don't need to wait that long to get the result. Um, of course, we don't yet have a randomized trial for venetoclax in MDS-AML. Now we do have a randomized trial for venetoclax in multiple myeloma. And lo and behold, just this week, the US FDA halted that clinical study for excess of deaths in the venetoclax arm. Now this occurred despite the fact that that arm had more robust responses, that PFS was better. In other words, even though two surrogate endpoints were improved, overall survival went the other way. Why does that happen? Precisely because surrogate endpoints are unreliable. They don't always capture what you care about. It depends on the clinical setting, what the validation coefficient is, which is something we've talked about on this podcast. So in contrast with the aviation industry, where tragedy is often highly visible, which forces people to take a closer look at laxities of regulation, in oncology, bad outcomes often require randomized controlled trials and careful adjudication of outcomes to detect because the disease is dire. And many bad outcomes and many harmful products could exist on the market for years in the absence of randomized controlled trials. And thus, they will not prompt 
a re-evaluation of regulatory requirements. See, that's one of the differences here. But, but that said, it is possible that at some point in the future, there will be a drug that comes to market that is found to have some serious deficit, some serious liability, and that may sadly be what it takes to kind of reevaluate regulatory processes uh, to swing the pendulum a little bit back from the current state of, I think, more or less deregulation of drug approvals um, towards something with a little bit more balance where you do kind of ask, do these drugs have efficacy sometime in the life cycle of the product, which is not something we can say about all cancer drugs today. Um, so what do I think the way the lesson of the Boeing FAA relationship is? I think the real lesson is that in any industry that caters to the public, that offers a product that has some benefits, like air travel does have benefits, but also entails some risks, you cannot rely on that group to self-police because that group has tremendous pressure to generate revenue and they are not in a position to be the most critical of their own practices. You need an external independent agency. And we have decided as a society that the central place that will occur is at the level of the US federal government. And you need strong FAA, you need strong FDA. And I think that is a sad analogy of the 737 MAX and what we see with drug approvals. the last topic. Deleterious germline mutations are a risk factor for neoplastic progression among high-risk individuals undergoing pancreatic surveillance. This is by Abe and colleagues from the Johns Hopkins group. What do you need to know about this? Well, even though researchers at Johns Hopkins have never proven that screening for pancreas cancer improves outcomes, they have implemented it in a large cohort. They have 464 high-risk individuals, which they define as people who either have two first-degree relatives with pancreatic cancer or one first-degree relative with pancreatic cancer and one second-degree relative with pancreatic cancer. They take all these patients, sorry, they take all these healthy people. They aren't patients, they're healthy people, of course. They merely have the risk of having pancreatic cancer. Let me add, they're also probably not average people. They're the people who are interested, willing, motivated, able to go to the Johns Hopkins University and enroll in the Cancer of Pancreas screening program. So I suspect, though I do not know because it is not provided to me, that these people likely enjoy fairly good socioeconomic status. And what do they do? Well, they take these people and then they screen them for pancreatic cancer. What do they screen them with? Well, I had to dig into reference four to find that out. So it turns out they use a combination of EUS, MR, and MRCP, and CT at intervals dependent on the presence of absence of neoplastic type pancreatic lesions, okay? Um, some patients are followed annually. Those with cysts or indeterminate radiologic lesions are underwent more frequent imaging, according to published international guidelines, every six to 12 months, um, every three to six months for larger cysts or cysts with worrisome features. Um, if there was stable appearance, they went back down to every 12 months. Recommendations for surveillance and treatment were discussed at the multidisciplinary clinical conference and decision-making was individualized. Okay, I suppose I would say that that doesn't exactly sound like a 
robust protocol. Um, see, what you want with a screening protocol is you want something that you can type on a sheet of paper and so anyone can apply it to any patient and have the exact same thing happen to those patients. Um, you probably don't want to constantly be modifying it and changing it uh, based at an individual level. Uh, that leads to something that is pretty irreproducible. Okay, so they took these patients, uh, sorry, these healthy people, and they subjected it, them to this program, um, and they found that with 15 years of follow-up, um, approximately 16% or so um, ended up having a pancreatic cancer. Um, okay, in this new paper, what they seek to show is that patients in whom there is a deleterious germline mutations are at a higher risk for neoplastic progression than those who merely have the family history who do not have deleterious mutations. And of course, they tell you what those deleterious mutations are. And of course, there are patients with mutations in those same genes who have just variants of unknown significance, and those are many, 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 many. Um, and thus, one wonders, when did they define what was deleterious, and when did they define what was merely of unknown significance? See, the key is, you need to define before you look at the data in terms of their outcomes which mutations you think are problematic and which mutations you think are simply neither here nor there. And if you look at the data and then you classify the mutations and then you look at the data again or vice versa, um, you can easily find some mutations that create some differences. What I think is quite interesting is with 329 patients in the family history only risk group, um, there were seven people who had events who develop pancreatic cancer. In the germline mutation risk group, so the group of people who have the deleterious mutations, there's 133 people, and six of them had pancreatic cancer. And in a Kaplan-Meier curve, the p-value for the difference in figure one of the paper is 0.05. And do you know what a p-value of 0.05 means? It means you can publish this paper. When you look at the Kaplan-Meier curve, what you really see is that the germline mutation risk group and the family history only risk group, uh, the curves are largely the same in the cumulative incidence of pancreatic adenocarcinoma uh, till about 10 years, when at year 10, about 11 and a half and 12, three people out of the seven people at risk at that time develop pancreatic cancer in the germline mutation group, and thus the curve split quite widely at that point. Um, at the beginning of the Kaplan-Meier curve, there's 329 people at risk in the family history only group, and there's 133 people at risk. The curves start to split when there's 21 people at risk and five people at risk. What's the takeaway here? Um, you know, it's, it's not very useful to look at the extreme tail of a curve where very, very few people are at risk, and thus a single event, or in this case three events, can create a difference that if there was one less pancreatic cancer, um, if it happened a year or two later, uh, the whole difference could vanish in a moment, in an instant, it could, it could disappear. Um, this is a very flimsy, statistically flimsy finding. It's based on very few events. It has a high fragility index. Maybe the fragility index is uh, one, even one event flip-flopping, the whole thing will tip. It, actually, in fact, it is one. It must be, it must be incredibly fragile. It's about to tip. Um, so not exactly a robust finding. Let me read you how they conclude their paper. 
these latter results support the recommendations of the International CAPS Consortium consensus. Consensus, of course, means there's no data, so we have to just agree. The pancreatic surveillance of individuals who carry a deleterious mutation should start at an earlier age than those under surveillance for their pancreatic cancer family history. Uh, it has to start earlier because their risk is slightly higher based on three people who had events out of seven people at risk 10 years out with a lot of uncertainty around that Kaplan-Meier curve. Okay. Um, uh, they also found approximately 16% of individuals in the family risk group had pancreatic cancer by age 80. Thus, we would recommend that individuals who meet family history criteria who do not have identifiable germline mutations after gene testing still undergo pancreatic surveillance. Of course, um, it doesn't mean that you can get away without the surveillance, is their interpretation. Let's read their conclusion. In conclusion, among a cohort of individuals undergoing pancreatic surveillance, the cumulative incidence of pancreatic cancer and high-grade dysplasia is significantly higher in individuals who carries a deleterious germline mutation, although they don't tell you exactly when they defined all those deleterious mutations, than in individuals with a strong family history but without an identifiable germline mutation. The findings, the findings provide better risk stratification and improved clinical decision making with regard to recommendations for pancreatic and other. Okay, well, let's skip all that. Um, wow. I guess what I would say about this, is, and the reason I think it, it troubles me, is that um, it makes intuitive sense that in a group of people in whom there is some risk of pancreatic cancer, um, you want to be able to do something that helps those people. But this study, unfortunately, I think, fails to show any of the things it claims to show. I guess I would say that um, it doesn't clearly show that deleterious germline mutations actually have higher rates of cumulative pancreatic cancer incidence over time um, for the simple reason that the difference is not that robust and really hinges on uh, two or three events, uh, one event, and then the whole difference is gone. Um, so it seems like you might want to get a little bit more data before you really drew that conclusion. Two, I think it really requires replication. Now that they've identified the deleterious mutations, one must look in a different data set of patients to see if those are the people in whom the risk is higher or not. Um, one worries that sometimes you can come up with any set of mutations that will create a separation of the two curves, especially if you've had a chance to look at the data in several ways. Um, the second thing I think is they actually have not, and I don't see any attempt to remedy this, they're not trying to prove to you that screening is helping people. See, the thing is, in order to prove that the screening helps people, you cannot just show that screening finds pancreatic cancer. You cannot just show that screening finds resectable pancreatic cancer. You have to show that screening, when compared against no screening, improves the rate at which people pass away from pancreatic cancer, and ideally, the rate at which people pass away from any reason whatsoever. That would require a randomized control trial. Because the more you screen for a condition, you may find nodules, lesions, that in a person might not have been the cause of death, might not have progressed. Um, although we think this would be unlikely with pancreatic cancer, it's not entirely unlikely if they're finding some of these, as they state, in people who are nearing the age of 80, who may have comorbidities that uh, would otherwise result in their passing away. Um, the burden of any screening program is to show that that screening program improves mortality versus not having that screening program. The next thing I'd point out is, you know, you should take a look at the conflicts of interest here. Um, a number of the authors receive royalties as co-discoverer of genes that are pancreatic cancer susceptibility genes 
or from companies that are working in this space, perhaps to de- to come up with some sort of um, profitable way to detect pancreatic cancer or other cancers early. Um, so in addition to being true believers, which I think all these people are, they also may have some other reasons why they would really like this to succeed. What's my overall takeaway of this paper? I guess I would say that the reason it kind of troubles me is that when you want to make people who don't yet have a disease better off, you have to put your critical hat on because the history of medicine has shown that there have been many, 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 many people who felt that they had just the thing that would do that. And then in retrospect, we found to offer no such thing. The reason you need somebody very critical is the critical person has to make sure that you have a derivation and validation cohort. You're not just figuring out what genes are detrimental um, from the group in whom you're asking what the incidence is, um, but you are asking whether or not that holds up in a different group of people, i.e. you haven't just overfit your data. Um, You need to ask whether or not, um, even though you're finding disease, you may not be finding disease that would be clinically significant. Um, You may not be finding disease that would change someone's life trajectory. Um, You need to be sure that the harms of your intervention, which in this case is kind of a big deal, a Whipple surgery, don't outweigh any potential um, benefits. Um, You need to have a critical eye, and I think you need to not be trigger happy to try to publish when you get the P of 0.05, um, but perhaps uh, be willing to follow the data out a little bit longer. Um, and ideally, you need to test your intervention in a randomized fashion and not an uncontrolled cohort for year after year after year after year. Um, and yet I don't see these things. Um, so I think the reason it troubles me is that I don't, I feel like this is a belief for which data is being marshaled and not data being examined to draw inferences. I think it's it's the flip side of, of the of the way in which science should proceed. Um, so those are just two cents on on this uh, quite interesting paper. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing what uh, replication efforts would show here um, and whether or not that P of 0.05 uh, will stay right there or whether or not it might change. All right, on that positive note, let's turn to our interview with Dr. Eli Esty. So I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Eli Esty. Dr. Esty is professor of medicine at the University of Washington Fred Hutch Cancer Center. He is an expert in leukemia. Uh, Dr. Esty has a long career in leukemia. He was on the faculty at the MD Anderson Cancer Center for 30 years, and then about a decade ago, uh, made the switch to the University of Washington. Um, It's a pleasure to have you with us here on the podcast. My pleasure. You know, you did your fellowship at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, uh, and that was in the late 1970s. And I asked you yesterday, um, you know, how did you sort of go down the path of becoming an expert in leukemia? And you talked about the influence of, of one gentleman, Emil Freirich. Um, can you tell us about that? Um, Dr. Freireich um, was a iconoclast. He believed in criticizing he, things that he thought were objectively incorrect. Mm-hmm. Uh, he often was not the most discreet in the way he went about things. Um, I think his career 
at least in administration, suffered because of that. But I think his idea of, of questioning things and his belief that if all you ever do is all you've ever done and all you'll ever get is all you've ever gotten, that belief, I think, was really um, instrumental to the attitudes that many people who train there under him carried forward. By that you mean in order to make progress against cancer, you have to be willing to experiment. Yes. And, I mean, Dr. Kantarjan trained with him. Um, Michael Keating trained with him, who was the first person to use fludarabine in CLL. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was the first person to pioneer combination chemotherapeutic strategies. Dr. Freireich, absolutely. He was the first to use platelet transfusions. Um, and that, I think you can see that um, willingness um, to do things differently, oftentimes incorrectly, but you can see that in, in all the people or many of the people who trained there. Dr. Barlogy was somebody else. Who, oh, Bart Barlogy. Yeah, he trained there He, uh-huh. he with the double transplants or uh-huh. whatever he they did for myeloma. To, Absolutely. To try different things. So mm-hmm. they're all very, very similar in, in that sense. Um, uh, so more than anything, you learned from him the importance of um, being willing to challenge the status quo, correct. being willing to to take a leap and to see if what you're doing is better than what you have now. Right. And, 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 you know, and I think, yeah, I mean, so for example, we never gave people seven plus three and we still don't. And I think what he said is, well, if you benefit some from regular dose ARC, there's a very good chance you'll benefit more from high-dose ARC if you're sensitive. Why would I then give 7 plus 3? And that was the philosophy that led to the development of FLAG and FLAG-IDA, mm-hmm. um, which there are some studies show or have more anti-leukemia effect than mm-hmm. 7 plus 3. Mm-hmm. And um, he also said, well, if your prognosis is terrible with 7 plus 3, why would we give it to you? Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, um, and which I think made sense to a lot of people. And, but mainly it was the willingness to try new things. And there was a certain edginess to him and he could be very difficult. You know, today, the way he would treat people mm-hmm. would not be accepted. Mm-hmm. Um, um, he would always say, you know, to me, you know, you're really stupid. And um, um, uh, why don't you take a gun and kill the patient? Oh, boy. And But then after that, he would come to his office, and he said, you know, well, I only criticize people who I think, you know, or have some hope. I see. And then you'd feel really good. Wow. And um, But, you know, a lot of that you couldn't do today. Right. But you could see some of that in this talk this morning. You mm. could see his influence, not in the exact topics, but in the philosophy. You yeah, certainly could see that. I absolutely, I absolutely and, could. Um, in, ter- in terms of the willingness to question, right. Accept the dogma, right? Exactly, and 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 the, yeah, and and to go, you know, perhaps into areas that are politically incorrect. And yeah. um, but I think, um, I think you know, there's a need for that in medicine as there is in all fields. Yeah, and I think uh, there is um, uh, so much guarding and and lack of direct speak uh, on many of these topics. Um, but, you know, I think listeners who are interested in sort of the culture in, in the 1960s and 70s in oncology uh, should check out Vincent DeVita's book, Death of Cancer, because he kind of portrays it very interestingly, mm-hmm. the culture of working at the clinical center building. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've never read it, but I've, and I've only read, I've read The Emperor of All Maladies, ah. the chapter about Dr. Frawark, and I thought it was a very good chapter. Very good, yeah. yeah. And I think it's an excellent book. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think you'd like the DeVita book because DeVita, of course, you know, he's, 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 uh, he's older now. Yeah. He's got nothing left to hide and he's yeah, willing to tell exactly. it as it was. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Now, let me ask you this. You raised something that I thought was a very astute way of thinking about novel anti-cancer drugs. Um, and I'll just unpack it a little bit. It's thinking about the years of life lost and how much that drug restores. So by this, we mean, um, I'll, use an, I'll use a very recent example I read in the JCL. Um, there's a very elegant paper that came out of Sweden uh, that said if a man at the age of 55 was diagnosed with chronic myelogenous leukemia in 1970, 1980, 1990, and 2000, 2010, um, how many years of life did that man lose and how did it change over time? And so what you see is in, in 1970, that man, by getting that diagnosis, lost about 22 years of life. He had a life expectancy with 22 years and he's gonna live three to four years with CML. Um, by the late 1990s and early 2000s, as we moved into Gleevec, that gap rapidly started closing and now the man loses two years of life. So he's gained 20 of those years back. And that's a testament to, I think we'll all agree, imatinib is very useful in CPCML. No doubt about it. And that's a testament to how good that drug is. It restores 90% of life expectancy. Now the point you're making is that many AML drugs, let's talk about the people who are afflicted with AML. Um, too often they're elderly, they're older. AML is a disease of the elderly. Median age is 72, 73, 74, something like that. Um, you're nodding your head. Um, and, um, and, and what your point was is if you look at an actuarial table, you will see that a 72-year-old man has something like 13 or 14 years of life expectancy left. Yes. Um, of course, that's longer than the general population because people may not know, but as someone gets older, their life expectancy is actually higher than the general population because it's removed all the people who've passed away untimely. Right. Okay. So, proportionally but about, increases. Yeah, right. right. Proportionally increases. Right. So it's about um, 13 years of life. And one of the astute points I think you are making is many of these drugs that we're up in the plenary session of the national meeting celebrating, getting standing ovations, are only adding back nine months, 12 months, 15 months, which is less than 10% of the years of life lost. Right. And when you look at it that way, it's not that you're trying to disparage the drug, it's just pointing out that there is a lot of room for improvement. Well, I couldn't agree more. I think, um, you know, there's so much emphasis on the p-value and the sacrosanct p equals 0.05, and mm -hmm. Dr. Fryer could always tell us stories about that came into being and, and, uh, and stuff. But they focus on this, well, it's better statistically, but they don't focus on the other question is, well, medically, what does it mean? And as you just pointed out, oftentimes it doesn't mean as much as it's purported to, uh, to, to maybe mean. And, and, and what I really think is that one of our big problems is part of the human condition is we have such hubris that we are really unwilling to acknowledge that in whatever number of years it will be, I'll be dead, but people will look at people like me who are felt to know something about the disease in the same way that all of us look at the people who put leeches on George Washington. Right. <laughs> leeches. What was wrong with these people? And today and, and, and in a few years, let's say targeted therapy, these people had no idea what they're talking about. Right. But it's the best they could do then. But not to acknowledge those limitations is, I think, really dangerous. Right. Because you begin to believe, people tend to believe what they want to believe. And I don't think that allows them to objectively criticize what they're doing. They can't be self-critical. Hmm. And everything, particularly with the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, ads on TV, ask your doctor about this, 
everything is this relentless story of progress. And nobody would gainsay that there's been progress. But I think it's important to keep it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, maybe more than at any other time, the the hype, the expectation, the heightened um, uh, promise of novel drugs is higher and higher, uh, in part because it's become very, very lucrative business. And uh, no the, the industry has a strong incentive um, to to sell the glass half full, uh, even in this case with the glass is only, you know, 5% full. Right. Uh, yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's the difference between losing 98% of your life expectancy and 92% or something in that, in that area. Mm-hmm. So it's not even half full. But that, that's correct. And, um, and I think it's not only for, you know the, the drug companies, but I think it's also younger physicians because I think um, uh, they see their path to success through this. Um, when I was their age, well, there were no drugs. I mean, some, but it wasn't mm-hmm. this. And so your career was a more traditional academic one. Okay, we're going to look at a problem and we're going to see um, okay, what does it mean if you have 20% blasts on day 14? And you would have a database, and you would look at that, and you'd write a paper. Um, But that is, I think, increasingly less common because it's easier, I think, and and, and people see it as more important in coming up with new drugs. And, um, And I think people can make their careers that way much more easily than they can the other way. And if I were that was the situation when I was young, I would have done the same thing, obviously. But, you know, I think that's unfortunate. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I guess what you're alluding to is, um, you know, when you were making your er- your early start in a career, uh, the skills that you needed to publish any papers or to have any recognition in the field is the ability to collect data meticulously, come up with hypotheses by yourself or with the close or with the you know yeah. the, the a mentor or two yeah. but very sort of a close knit group of people mm-hmm. uh, analyze your findings mm-hmm. report those findings mm-hmm. uh, and and what's been replaced that model of you know how many many oncologists of a generation came to be well known has been replaced with a modern model which is that there are so many new drugs being approved that people want to attach themselves to a drug i'm the person who brought the idh1 drug to market mm-hmm. um, and then one may ask, like, you know, what did that one person do for that drug? Well, they served as the PI on the clinical study. Uh, they have their name on the paper, and it's in that first authorship spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may not have written much of the paper. That mm-hmm. may have been written by the medical writer. Mm-hmm. They probably didn't collect the data themselves. Um, that's been farmed out to teams of people. Mm-hmm. The analysis was, of course, done on the company's back end mm-hmm. uh, by the company's analyst. Um, the figures were presented by the company. They were mm-hmm. chosen by the company. The first author may not have even had independent access to the data, um, but the first author is the one that's going to get there on the podium at ASCO or ASH and give the plenary. Uh, the first author is the one that's going to have this you know, badge of honor. Um, what do you think about this new model? Um. <laughs> You're in a safe space, Dr. Esky. <laughs> Well, I mean, I think it's, well, I think it leaves something to be desired. That's one way to put it. I think yeah. it, 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 you know, it, 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 it discourages critical thinking. It discourages it, it yeah. It discourages critical thinking, and um, it discourages independent thinking. Yeah. And um, I, I think, personally, I find that regrettable. Yeah, and 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 um, and the, w- the way you put it, I think, in your talk was you said that you're afraid that there's a generation of oncologists growing up who are afraid of questioning authority. 
that it, it, you know to to play this game to be successful at getting your name attached to a drug um, the absolute best thing you can do is play ball with every you know constituency you meet not offend anybody um, rave about every new drug uh, be supportive of everything ignore the limitations and tout the positives you're nodding you agree that yes I I think I mean I think there's a lot of truth to that I mean um uh, everything is now a team, and our team did this, and um, yeah. um, they use these buzzwords, and um, that, that really come from, you know, marketing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a uh, uh, marketing has really become increasingly influential, and I mean, I can't blame these people for doing that. I mean, I would do the same thing if I were them. Um, would you? Oh, it's so hard to know, but... Um, if you were a junior person coming up in leukemia now, how would you... Or what would be your... You have trainees, of course, many who've worked with you. Yeah, I how mean... How do you advise them? Well, we, tr- we have a database, and we try to write papers based on that. For example, one of the things I talked about this morning is we don't really even know what proportion of our patients are eligible for trials to mm-hmm. begin with. Right. That's an important question. Um, so we try to do things like that. One of the things that you talked about this morning that I thought was really interesting was a project where, um, you know, and, and this goes to the critical thinking idea, which is that people say a lot of the time that um, when it comes to deciding if a patient is able to handle uh, G-Clam, Flagida, 7 plus 3, intensive induction chemotherapy, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about the word intensive, but induction chemotherapy, um, one sort of philosophy is that no one is better than the doctor at eyeballing the patient saying fit, unfit, fit, unfit. And and you thought, okay, let's put that to the test. Is it in fact the case that doctors are able to make that judgment call? And you compared in a PCORI funded grant the ability of doctors to prognosticate about two people versus the ability for a validated scoring system to prognosticate. And then, of course, we you use the statistic, the area under the receiver operator characteristic curve. Uh, listeners will, of course, know that a 0.5 is a lousy test that has no discrimination coin flip, right. It's no better than a coin flip. 50% of the time, the person you thought who was going to have the event over the person you thought wouldn't have the event, it was the other way around. So it's no better than a coin flip. But doctor's gestalt was 0.61, which is really not much better than a coin flip. And the validated scale was 0.76 or something like that. So you were able to show this with your um, with, with someone who works with you, who's an who, uh, right. excellent junior faculty. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I guess the reason I bring this up is this is the kind of what was once the norm would be for junior faculty to try to come up with these kind of clever ways of analyzing novel problems. That is really fallen out of favor. Um, there's not much incentive for that. And, and I, I, I arguably would say that I don't hear people advising junior people to ta- take these questions. Yeah. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, we're in favor of doing studies. I mean, because it is a way to advance people's careers. But there are problems that we face. We see a, you know, fair number of people with AML, but um, oftentimes the studies to be completed quicker are done at several places. And um, not only is there limited intellectual uh, contribution, but younger people, the way their careers are made is they first author papers. And a lot of times these authorships are decided a priori who'll put the most patients on. And so a lot of times 
in these multi-center studies, our younger faculty would be third author, a fourth author, a fifth author, or something like that, which is not best for their career. So as much as possible, you try to do investigator-initiated trials, if possible, with drug companies because they have new drugs. But if not, well, see what we can come up with that is different on its own. And um, But the limitations in that are the support because the company might be willing or not willing to support the study. We've had lots of instances where um, just the other day we were interested in looking at a society of venetoclax in people who exclusively had measurable residual disease. And they said, oh, sorry, somebody else is doing the study. So, um, um, so that's, you know, that's hard to do. And what makes it even harder is if we do it, I mean, we could give a society in venetoclax, presumably, if the insurance allowed. I mean, I don't know. But even if we could, then the problem would be the support for the study. Because, as you know, these days, they're really onerous requirements mm -hmm. for reporting. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that you see this, and I hear about this all the time, the younger faculty members, we don't have... Um, enough support for them. So they have to do all these monitoring requirements themselves. You ask yourself, is this the best use of someone's time to try to distinguish between grade two and grade one nausea and vomiting? No, not for a younger faculty member. I don't believe that is the best use of their time. Mm -hmm. But without support, it's hard to do. So we're, you know, and I'm sure other people have thought of the same thing, of saying to our place, um, would you support trials. Mm -hmm. um, we like to think that having the trials brings in more patients. Mm -hmm. It's an incentive um, to the institution. And we know mm -hmm. the number, yeah, yeah, the institution benefits from that. The transplant service benefits from that, etc. Everybody benefits from that. If they were to support us, then we wouldn't necessarily just have to do these multi-center studies mm -hmm. um, um, for which we don't get credit. Uh, or enough credit for the younger people who advance their career, we could do more things by ourselves. Uh -huh. So whether that will eventuate, I don't know. But I think that's, you know, many years ago, um, it may have been Dr. Fryer, I Dr. Fryer wrote something called, you know, the clinical researcher an embattled species. <laughs> and I think it's, or an endangered species. Uh -huh. And I think that's really true today too, is that to me. Independent clinical research. Yeah, yeah. to me is, you know, um, there's so much emphasis on this bench to bedside research. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a, you know. It's a buzzword. Uh, it's a buzzword, that's exactly right. And, you know, um, Nobody would denigrate that. I mean, you'd have to be a total anti-intellectual to say that's not important. But, you know, I still think there's room for <clears throat> the other way around. Mm -hmm. Careful clinical observation. Right, and exactly. And careful empirical testing. Right. And one example, and people <laughs> may say, oh, you know, that's outdated. It's 30 years old. Is, you know, or there are two. One is ATRA. Yeah. So when that drug was first reported from China, it was in the late 1980s, and China was not the country that it was today, and there was a lot of um, people were, they were incredible that this result was actually correct. And that, that it could induce it remission, right, right? right. But did they already know about retinoic acid receptor fusion? 
No. no. It, so it was empirically discovered? Yes. Oh. I mean, now it came out of traditional Chinese folk medicine <clears throat> on some ability to differentiate. But, you know, the trials never would have been done based on that. Is that true? Is yes. that it had an origin in Chinese herbal medicine? Yes. In tra- traditional, I don't know herbal, but oh, traditional but yeah, Chinese traditional medicine. medicine. Okay. It really was greeted with, you know, incredulity in the West until the results were confirmed mm-hmm. in France mm-hmm. and at Memorial by Dr. Worrell. And only later it was found out why it worked, it disrupted PMLRAR alpha. Right. And now it's often cited as a paradigm, I hate that word, but of precision know, just medicine. That's right. Bench yeah. to bedside yeah, research. It is, yeah. And but the truth is something In quite between. different. Yes. Yeah. It's not the whole truth. It's not the whole truth. And fludarabine, which even today is used routinely, at least in young people with CLL. It had a very interesting history. It was first used in AML at MD Anderson. And at the doses that you needed to see in any AML effect in the bone marrow, the patients would routinely get demyelinization of their brain. And they would get acute multiple sclerosis. That was at a dose of 150 milligrams per meter daily for five days. And so that drug really had no future in that disease. But, um, um, Later on, Michael Keating, who was there, said, well, you know, uh, we know we can get 30 milligrams. We did that going up to 150 milligrams. And CLL is a, you know, it's a less proliferative disease than AML. That's, you know, mm-hmm. so let's try it in CLL. That's how fludarabine started in CLL. I see, which but, eventually became FCR. Right. This is an Anderson. That's correct. And Burlex, they, 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 the requirements were less rigorous. So uh-huh. said, okay, yeah, try it. But that totally came from you know, clinical observation. Uh-huh. So again, it's not to um, question the importance of bench-to-bedside research, but you wonder, maybe there should be more emphasis on the other. Yeah. And particularly, there are new ways of doing clinical trials that, you know, that I think could be looked at. I think the idea of this phase one, phase two, phase three thing is really silly. I mean, we could get into that, but yeah. I mean, you just for a minute, just think about the three plus three rule, and I think it's, it's I hadn't thought about this till now, but it's sort of symbolic. Because the way that rule works is if two of the first three people have toxicity, that yeah, dose over. is never revisited, right. it's over. But wait a second, what happens to those two people were you know 70 years old rather than 40 years old? Doesn't that influence it? Right. Of course it does. And people have actually written papers, there's a guy named Rogatko who's published about things that determine toxicity in phase one trials, and dose is not the most important. There right. are other things. Right. What they're, they're all have to have a bilirubin less than two, but within that two, what the bilirubin was? Was it 1.4, 0.8? Same with creatinine. And that's interesting. So the question Absolutely. is, you know, it, it, how reliable is that it's at actually not. getting the MTD? Right, of course, and, and, and it's somebody, not. Somebody made the other point to me, which is what about the one out of three that didn't have toxicity? What about that person perhaps Absolutely. being underdosed? Right, exactly. And so, you know, and so people have proposed more intelligent ways of doing these things, but they probably would take more time. Yeah. And the many companies see the purpose of the phase one study is let's just get on to the phase two study. Right. Even if they haven't optimized. Right. Even if even if even if the whole thing is a rope of sand. Right. They never look at it. Right. Um, and if anything, in the the changes in the phase one paradigm have gone the other way. How can we do this then less than three plus three patients? Right. Accelerated Simon, you right, know, exactly. It's just it's just it's just a fig leaf, really. A, yeah. And, you know, I mean the same is true in you know, you could say, well, why don't we monitor response in phase one? Well, 
because we don't know until we're at the dose that maybe we're too low a dose. Right. But I think it would be really interesting to go and see, okay, how often do you see a response at a lower dose at a drug that's eventually proved effective? Maybe it's not the same response as the dose you use, but maybe you saw something. And if you saw nothing in phase one, the phase two was doomed to failure. Hmm. That's a very interesting piece of research to yeah. me, but how are you gonna get that funded? Oh. Nobody will fund that. It's not dealing with you know some gene or something like that. So I think, personally, the NCI is a bit short-sighted in what they fund. Yeah, they move um, from Fed to Fed. Right. So I think there are lots of things that could be done in the clinical research arena yeah. um, in terms of treating patients. I mean, a lot of things people don't know. I mean, um, um, do you need to do a day 14 marrow? I mean, is there a benefit in measuring using blood rather than marrow to measure MRD? Mm-hmm. And I mean, collecting this data, um, it would help to have money for that. Mm-hmm. And um, But it's difficult to, uh, you know, it's really difficult to get. Yeah. And um, that's, I, I think, is a problem. Yeah. You're gonna you're about to scoop us on some work we're doing with phase one, phase two trials and oh, dose levels. Right. And um, and also looking at, uh, of course, drugs that lack single agent activity. Yeah. But um, I guess I want to, and, and you know, talking about dose, what about a drug like gemtuzumab, ugamycin, where we had it on the market, nine milligrams per meter squared for a decade. And then only later we learned that that was probably way too much. And it came back on the market after being off the market for seven years uh, or for five years or something like that at three milligrams per meter squared. And that's now the way in which most of us use yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, and that's another question is, you know, that, that that's, I think, that I'm trying to discuss some today is, you know, the, the focus on safety first, and, 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 and I mean, nobody would say that's not important, but for a patient with some of these diseases, they're concerned with safety, but they're also concerned with benefit, and they might be willing to accept the 15% or whatever increase in toxicity if it was plausible that this drug was much better than the standard, which is terrible. Mm -hmm. So the focus on safety, I think, has gotten way out of hand. And you can say, yeah, but that reflects the American public. And their, you know. Their appetite for risk. Right, their appetite for risk. But I I think some education might be useful or, because I don't think it's that difficult a concept to understand. Yeah, and I think there's um, recently some some actual polls of the American public and their what they want from drug regulation, and it right. seems like they actually do want more information. Right. Let me ask you this. Now, in your talk today, you were tough on a bunch of drugs. Uh, let me see. Let me see if I've got it right. Uh, all of them. All of them. The venetoclax approval in combination with decitabine and azacitidine, which I've been critical of because it lacks a control arm. You're critical of it for the same reason. There's, it's an uncontrolled study. You're nodding your head. Um, they keep lumping CR and CRI, but CR with incomplete hematopoietic recovery is a different thing than CR. You, you agree? Very plausibly. Yeah, very plausibly. Okay. Um, the drug you're critical of is glass degib, the hedgehog inhibitor, in combination with low-dose ARAC against ARAC. The point you were making is why isn't it against azacitidine, which would be a more appropriate comparator. You're nodding your head. Yes. Vixios. The problem with Vixios is not necessarily a problem, but of course it has no pre-market data for people younger than the age of 60. Correct. And now we're using it almost relentlessly in people below the age of 60. Right. And that's people. the problem with, yeah. with, with, with many of these approvals. I mean... And it's a difficult thing. I mean, I understand the problem that, yes, they're maybe better, maybe, um, but 
and we were alluding to this before about the, how much of an improvement are they in an absolute sense. And my fear, you could say you're biased because you spend your life doing these trials, is that they will be so widely used in the community that people will be less preferred for trials. And under the false pretense, sorry, that these things are, they're things that they're not. That they're, you know, and, and, and people will believe that they're less intense and intense is bad and they can be outpatients and all this marketing stuff that undoubtedly goes on. And um, maybe they would benefit more from intense therapy. And yes, they may benefit from venetoclax, but as we were saying before, it may be the difference between losing 98% of your life expectancy and 85% of your life expectancy. Mm-hmm. And if we're ever going to get be do better than 85%, well, people have to do trials. You know, and the, the fear is, yeah. is that they won't because they'll be getting venetoclax. So you make this really uh, astute point that I've only heard, I've only read has been made in one other context. Um, there's a wonderful paper that talked about, I think in Nature Reviews, Clinical Oncology, the approval for liposomal irinotecan in second-line pancreatic cancer, which has a very modest to marginal improvement in overall survival. Um, arguably, we wonder if li- if it needs to be liposomal, what if we just use full theory, which a lot of people were using in, and there's phase two data to support that. And one of the things the authors of this summary said, which I believe was Dr. Bates and Foho, was that when you take a branded $100,000 a year medication and you put it on the market, uh, it has, in addition to the way it's, it's supposed to be used, it's got, of course, some off-label use, but it's so aggressively marketed that what it does is a patient population that might be ideally best served actively seeking clinical trials now has a drug that's being heavily marketed to them and many patients who would be otherwise trial eligible would rather take this drug off, you know, take this approved drug in the marketplace without any sort of following of their outcomes or anything like that. And so they actually say it talks about one of the unintended consequences of marginal drug approvals is it erodes the ability to conduct clinical trials. And that's the point that you're making, I think, with some of these approvals. Right. I mean, it's difficult because, you know, on the one hand, yes, you do want the drugs approved, but you don't want them to be taken as such that trials stop. Yeah. And that's a really difficult thing. And one proposal, I'm sure it's not unique with me, is there has to be some compulsory reevaluation of the drug. Yeah. That, okay, you know, um, okay, two years have gone by. I mean, the median censoring time in the acetylcholine thing is only about 18 months. Right. And we know that the death rate from AML doesn't really begin to decrease until three years have gone by. So mm-hmm. 18 months is not really that long. Um, many studies have three or four year median follow-ups. And um, um, so to me, there would have to be some kind of compulsory thing um, where the drug company is told, okay, you need to conduct further studies and they have to be done in people that are not included in the original study. Mm-hmm. Um, and there has to be more follow-up so we know, in fact, how good the drug is. And one such study is a study that you're trying to get launched, which is you want to know, AZA plus venetoclax, what is the response rate in people who are truly unfit for other therapy based right. on a validated score and not the doctor's right. eyeball? Right. It's not perfect, but, you know, but, um, you know, is is. And tell us about that study that you're trying to do. Yeah, I mean, so I always think about my career, a lot of it's been spent with these models. And <laughs> it would be, really, be really ironic, if not 
sad if the physician, and I've heard people say this, I can look at the patient, Eli, and I can do as well as this model you spent all this time doing. I don't need the model. And in fact, we know that physicians believe that. I, in the talk, I alluded to this AML-14 study in, in the UK, and the idea was to take people over 65 and randomize them between intense therapy and less intense therapy, and then within the less intense therapy was hydrea versus low-dose ARC. And only 1% of the patients were randomized between the less intense and the less intense because Mm -hmm. the doctors a priori judged whether what they were. Mm -hmm. And our own experience, we have a study where we randomize people between less intense and more intense G-clam. And maybe 10 or 15% of the physicians and patients are willing to participate. They believe that they know which is better for the patient a priori. I see. And yet there's this very interesting thing that says that the decision whether to give people intense or less intense therapy has a lot to do with the characteristics of a physician. Mm. A man is more likely to propose more intense therapy. Somebody's more willing to take, incur risks, financial risks in their own lives are more willing to prescribe intense therapy. And then there's the thing that you alluded to with the AUC comparison. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think that's very plausible that many of these people are fit for intense therapy um, and are not given it. And conversely, the original study did not include people who were who were uh, really unfit. And that's the genesis of a South Sound study. And it takes place in South Puget Sound. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to take people who by this model, mm-hmm. as imperfect as it is, mm-hmm. maybe halfway between a coin flip and certainty, it's still not far from certainty, mm-hmm. um, but it's still better than the guess. Um, and to give them the azacitidine, the menetoclaxis, in the same way as reported in the recent study in blood, and by um, Denardo and colleagues, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we would um, um, do it as far as possible as the way that study was done, mm-hmm. but we would not be prescriptive. The doctors would they would treat the patients as they would any other patient, and we would see what the CR rate was, and we have this very. Um, stopping rule that you would stop if after the 15 patients it might take a year to accumulate if only one or none of them had a CR and if that were to happen the likelihood that this drug would truly be 40 Mm percent is vanishingly small Mm -hmm. because we didn't want the study where people would say well you know you could have really easily missed the 40 percent response rate right so now you can say Shouldn't you stop earlier? Do you really need to be, you know, 99% certain that it's not 40%? But we think, and that's a very good question. And, but for this purpose, we think it's important. So we don't want somebody to say, yeah, but, you know, easily could have missed the 40% response rate. And one can imagine you're going to be up against, uh, if it is the case that in a, when a validated score is used to decide if somebody's unfit and venetoclax does not have the response rate that was touted in the study, um, I would say the opposition to that belief is going to be very, very strong and determined and financially of funded. Of course. And... Yeah. But, so you need certainty on your side. Yeah. It, yeah. Uh, no. I mean, well, that's of you clearly get, the case, yeah. which is the reason that the company has been uh, not terribly enthusiastic about funding it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can understand that. But that doesn't mean that I don't think it's the right study to do. I mean, I think it is the right study to do. Mm-hmm. And um, um, Companies don't fund studies that erode their own market share. <laughs> no. 
And, and that's the problem, I think, in the field is that, um, you know, we're now at a time where 90% of, of studies in oncology are industry-sponsored. And, and people say that isn't that good that we have, you know, a bunch of different cooperative groups and the industry funding. And I say, of course, you know, we, we want lots of people um, doing no research. Question. No question. Then nobody else can fund it. Right. Uh, right. There's a, yeah, nobody else can fund it. But one of the challenges is um, there are many, many important clinical questions that the the public that, you know, researchers, that patients, we need the answer to, and they're not going to be funded by the industry. No, of course uh, not. Yeah. No. I mean, and these are not deep questions. These are questions that would occur to any patient. <laughs> right. How any, do you know right. I'm really unfit? How do you know I wouldn't benefit from something else? Right. And as you pointed out in the thing that you wrote in Nature Reviews Clinical Oncology, without randomization, it's really difficult to know. And, 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 and the reason they might choose not to randomize is they say, well, there's nothing to randomize them against. They're not, we're doing them a favor. There's nothing else they could receive. Mm-hmm. But whether that's true is not necessarily the case. People are saying, that we are living in a time that is the renaissance of AML drugs. I've heard that word, yes. And what would you say um, when, you know, we see Medici, we see uh, Michelangelo here <laughs> and uh, Botticelli, well, Caravaggio. Uh, we're in the renaissance well, of AML drugs. What do you say to that? Uh, well, I think there's been substantial progress that's made in my 40 years, 41 years. But I would say that a lot of that has been with supportive care. I think that's been the major um, uh, antifungal. Yes. And there are new drugs, and there's no question that they've improved things that you can demonstrate in a randomized trial, at least in some patients. Adding gemtuzumab is beneficial. Adding mitostorin is beneficial. But as you pointed out, the, the absolute benefits are probably not what you might want to call it a renaissance. And um, I think a lot of it uh, reflects the climate of deregulation in the United States. So mm-hmm. that these drugs, I think, are being approved. Yes, they're not they're plausibly better, but I think there's no question that the same drugs wouldn't have been approved a few years ago. And in your paper, one of the things you pointed out was clofarabine. I remember yeah. it well. It was mm-hmm. an MD Anderson drug developed by doc, at Southern Research Institute in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and really brought forward by Dr. Kantarjan. And that drug was not approved because um, one of the reasons was, as you astutely pointed out, that it was clear that maybe 20% of the people later went on to get intensive therapy. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe now the clofarabine improved them so that now they were fit for intensive therapy. That's one possibility. That's one possibility, but the more likely possibility is that they were fit all along. Right. And so that drug was not approved. Mm-hmm. But my guess is that if that drug came to the market today, it would be approved. It would be. That's my guess, too. And yeah. um, the bar has changed. That's the, the right. It's not that the renaissance. Yes. <laughs> Nobody would say that there are not many more interesting drugs. That's only a fool would say that. But the question is, is that the whole story? Right. Uh, and what I think is that there are many people who would like you to believe that is the whole story. And, you know, it's, it's, it's marketing and we're making great progress and drug companies are great and all this kind of stuff. Instead of looking at another possibility that, yes, there's progress, but it's not as much as people would like to imagine, mm-hmm. you know, compared to what you were talking about with Gleevec, where you, you know, you yeah. gain 90% of your right. life expectancy. Right. Here you gain 10% of what you would otherwise gain. Um, it's not that. And, um, you know, and... 
maybe five or ten years ago, the same drugs wouldn't have been approved. I don't think you would have approved a drug without a randomized study. Yeah. I, so to the claim renaissance, um, you would say um, uh, there there's some good painters out there, but we're also willing to hang up a lot more on our walls. Yes. Uh, yeah. Curb your enthusiasm. Curb, yes, yeah. but that's a, about the pain. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I guess... Willing you, to hang up a lot more on the walls. Is, that's very true. Um, you, you alluded to this in the talk, but you made the point that, um, you know, uh, when you speak about sort of this, it, it's broader than drug regulation is, I think, one of the astute yes. points you made, that it is sort of a deregulatory environment. Yes. And we just heard that um, the FAA asked Boeing, yes. uh, you know, you, you inspect your own plane. Yes. And you just let us know yes. if it's safe to fly. Yes. And that's, uh, I think that's, yes. a, some people would say, is a problematic system. Right. Yeah. I think so. And, 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 you know, I think if you look um, beginning around 1908 with the financial crisis, I think, you know, financial regulation obviously got a lot stronger. You couldn't make these absurd loans to people that would never be able to repay. And, um, um, you know, and people became more aware of climate change. And they said, wow, you know, we just can't keep doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. There have to be more regulation and other fields as well. And I think during that time, I think the FDA was stricter. Yeah. Um, the climate was different. And now the climate has changed. And I don't believe it's entirely a coincidence that the that the pace of approvals has improved, has has has, has uh, increased as well. Yeah, and I, I and I share your sort of view of the of the matter. I mean, there's no doubt about it that these drugs do add something, and and some of them are better than others. And yeah. there are certain, you know, we all have yeah. some that we we really right. think are, right. are are good. Right. Um. But at the same time, uh, I do see the FDA saying, "Look, look what a good job we've done. We've approved 38 drugs in the last sure. year." And I say that's not really the good metric by which you should be judging your no, performance. No, that's the funny thing. Yeah. Is, is that's it exactly? It's a number of the question. Is what are the drugs add? Yeah, what are the drugs add? Yeah, right. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, I mean, I think that's really true. And I think, you know, fear is, is that, well, two, one is that this trend will continue without any follow-up studies. Mm -hmm. um, and two is that eventually the climate will change back to more regulation. Yeah. And then you hope they don't go back to the ways, which I was very critical of before. I remember five or six years ago saying, oh, well, heck, you know, well, we never approve anything. You know, why don't we approve things? Why do they need, you know, what do they need? You know, why does the p-value have to be 0.04998 instead of 0.051 or something? Right. I mean, why do we do this? So, you know, so I'm always critical. But, but you know, I think the idea is you, you do need people that are critical of the system. And, um, um, and I think uh, it's probably maybe always been this way in medicine. I remember choose to remember differently, but I think there's certainly something where younger people are afraid to criticize the system because they don't see any personal gain in it for them. I think it's a professional yeah. liability yeah, to think, them. Yes, yeah. I think it's a professional liability to them. And perhaps because I grew up in the 1960s where there was a time of tremendous uh, turbulence. turbulence. And, and there were, were real risks back then. Yeah, absolutely, where people questioned, you know, the segregation system in the South, where they questioned the Vietnam War. Um, um, uh, you know, they would occupy university buildings, um, you know, Columbia, yeah. Berkeley, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that was very influential for yeah. me. And um, I don't see that today. Now, you could say, well, the challenges are not quite as bad as they were then. Um, there's no Vietnam War. But, um, but still, um, I don't see the... the, the the critical thinking, the willingness to criticize that I think we, we, we need. Yeah, I think, I wonder, it is, um, I mean, I guess I, I guess I do agree that maybe the challenges are different. Um, 
but there are still challenges. And uh, but I do think that the pressures for conformity are stronger today than they've ever been, um, and uh, the disincentives are strong. And you know, I know many young people who um, you know are unwilling to come on this podcast and say what they think about some drugs, or unwilling to you know write some papers um, because they're nervous that you know in their field. The other thing about oncology now is, of course, all, we're all sub-disease specialists, mm-hmm. and they're unwilling to say, um, you know, drug company X's new approval is bad, because what if they need to do an IIT with that company in a year from now? Sure. And, uh, and that's just not worth it to them. And what are they gonna accomplish by saying that that drug approval is bad? The marketing people are gonna ignore the paper, and people are gonna push it, and very few people will read it, perhaps. Right. I mean, and, and, and I mean, I understand that fear, and, and, and I think that's, when you get older, I think that's one of the luxuries you have. I mean, there are many things you don't want to have when you get older, but um, but I think a luxury you have is is that whatever your career is is basically complete. I mean, you've done certain things, and that's it. And um, uh, and there's less to lose. You can retire. You can't as easily retire when you're 50 or 40 um, as when you're 72. Um, and so I think older people have a you know, a, a, a responsibility, I don't know, responsibility, but I think it's easier for them to, to, to do this kind of thing. And I'd like to think, probably totally naively, that a pharmaceutical company would respect you more for doing this. Mm-hmm. And rather than just saying, we're never gonna do a study with him again, mm-hmm. maybe they would ask your advice more. I don't know, Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I but at this point in my life, I just don't want to um, sugarcoat it. Yeah, sugarcoat and not say what I think. And you do insult people. Like in this thing this morning, this guy came up to me and he said, "Wow, you know, my parents were FDA employees, and, and you know, you were insulting them." And you know, I feel bad about that. But and but that's the price you pay. You're going to make people um, unhappy. You're mm-hmm. going to some people are not going to agree. Maybe the majority. And, you know, now this really is going to be self-serving and it's going to really sound terrible. But, you know, I think all movements in history, and this is really absurd comparison, start with people where they're routinely criticized. So, you know, so I think there's really a need because a lot of times when people speak out about things, they may not change immediately, Mm -hmm. but hopefully other people will hear them and pick up where they left off where they left off let me ask you about this idea um, which I think has been captured to some degree with flit 3 ITD and with IDH the idea that in a disease like AML we're gonna be able to sequence everyone's genome their cancer genome we're gonna find druggable alterations, we're gonna drug those alterations, and we're gonna achieve success, tremendous success. That's, uh, I mean, it's a very popular belief. Um, And yet we see with the IDH1 and IDH2 inhibitors, which are um, clearly aberrations that are important for oncogenesis, that you can drug those, and you will achieve CRs, but they are not as durable as you would have hoped. Right, And, and I think what happens is, and there's one of the examples in the talk, was they looked at 12, not that many people, at diagnosis and relapse before they got menacidinib. And what they found was that at relapse, there were signs that the 
drug was still working to suppress these 2-HG levels, which impaired differentiation. That was fine. But now other things had developed under the selective pressure of the treatment. And, you know, I think cancer cells probably undergo evolution, too. And, you know, and they're capable of adjusting, too. Otherwise, they wouldn't have survived. You know, I mean, obviously, there's a host response to cancer. And for these cells to survive, I mean, they've obviously have had to be very adaptable over time. And to pretend that they're not going to adapt to single-agent targeted therapy or double-agent targeted therapy, I don't think that's correct. Mm-hmm. And so, um, at least in terms of single targeted therapy, I think that's doomed. And, you know, the real secret is to combining these things quicker. You can combine them with chemotherapy. You can combine them with each other. Um, but I think to use them one at a time is, you know, not or a fool's error, not the right way to go. And, of course, but then there are problems because I personally would probably start off. I would, okay, is it safe, you know, and then I would move right to the combination. I would have that written in the study to begin with. Uh-huh. Use the combination sooner, but of course that's going to require and, these, and, yeah, go ahead. these different companies to work together. Oh, well. And that's going to be problematic. Well, let um, me push you on this combination idea. In your <laughs> opinion, um, would you support empirically driven combinations? If I know drug A is active, drug B is active, let's try it empirically. Uh, instead of the current model where um, people spend a great deal of time and a great deal of mice and cell cultures trying to generate some proof yeah, of synergy both. or something like that. Yeah. I do both. I mean, okay. you know, I think you really have to do both. And I think the emphasis is all on the mice. And um, I remember when I was young, and you can say, yeah, that was like in the ancient era, so it doesn't apply. I would read the rationale of the protocol, and I would be very impressed. And, but they routinely don't work. And I mean, so that's really cast a lot of doubt on my belief of the, of, of the rationale, and to me, it's the proof of the pudding is in the eating, um, show me the money, all those things. Does it work clinically? And, you know, and it's very interesting because one of the things that happens is, and we're talking about testing many things, is that in Houston, um, many years ago, we had access to a lot of drugs. And we decided, well, we weren't smart enough to know which one to give the patient, so why don't we just randomize people among the different drugs? Mm-hmm. And they weren't randomized phase three studies, they were small randomized phase two studies. And people would say, well, yeah, Eli, you know, but the power, you know, is very low. You know, the power might only be, depending on how you set it up, might be only 40% or 50%. And they would say, well, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows you need 80% power. It's an underpowered study, famous words. And, but they didn't stop to think that if you have four drugs and you don't really know which one is best, then the chance that you really pick the right one is 25%. So your power is not 80%. It's 80% for that study, but uh-huh. it's 80% multiplied by 25%, uh-huh. which is less than the, you know, than the 40% that we start, that our thing would have. In other words, simply put, the worst false negative is never investigated at all because you think you're smart enough to know that that's right. But history would suggest that's not right. So we proposed this randomized study. We wrote a protocol. 
And um, but it turned out that the companies found out we were doing this, and they went to Rockland Tarchin, who was my chair, great supporter of, of me, and um, you know, and he came to me. He said, "You know, Eli, um, uh, the companies really would prefer us not to do this." And you know, silly me, he said, "Well, yeah, wouldn't they want to know if the drug is good to begin with?" And he said. You know, for somebody who's supposed to be smart, you're really stupid because maybe they don't want to know this mm. because the idea is they want to get people to invest in the drug. And if it turns out that it didn't seem as good as some other drug, well, yeah. they're going to invest in the other drug. Uh-huh. And so... These were small biotechs, pl- you know. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, and so um, that idea was later taken by the MRC in the UK and they give us credit for it. And it, it's the play, the winner design, but they were smart. So what they said is we're just gonna run, we'll have a standard and we'll only test it versus one drug. So we'll do low dose C versus uh-huh. drug A. Uh-huh. And if drug A is a loser, we'll move it out quickly and we'll I move see. in drug B. And so that idea that you don't need these huge, that it's better not to have these huge studies where they're, so you have this magic 80% power that it's better to just move on when it's, you know, when it's even if it's fairly clear because you have so many to test. And that I think is what you're getting at. So to me, um, that's a better way of looking at things. I see. And I would, that's how what I would do. I would say I'll have combination AB, combination AC, combination AD, et cetera, et cetera, and randomize. Mm-hmm. But that's probably not practical. But mm-hmm. I think these are topics that deserve, that get so little attention. Of course. Because people are so fixed on this phase one to phase two to phase mm-hmm. three way of doing things. And as we mentioned, they never stop to think that maybe the phase one dose is totally wrong. Mm-hmm. And, or, I mean, a basic thing. I mean, they say, well, you know, okay, we've seen it hits the target. We have our optimal biologic dose, end of study. Well, maybe there's another target that they don't realize. And maybe you do need to increase the dose. Wouldn't it be interesting to look and do some kind of study where you looked at studies compared of a drug done at the OBD and at the same drug done at an MTD and see if the results were different. Mm-hmm. See, that's the kind of research that I think is really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. But nobody's interested. Yeah. And um, Simple clinical questions. Right. Yeah. And um, they're not deep, but there's no support for them. You know, that to me is really sad. Yeah, I think you alluded to a few interesting things. Um, one, I think, is... You know, there's such a mismatch in these clinical trials. We're obsessed with these kind of terrible minutiae of clinical trials that may or may not be important. At the other hand, we're often not asking important questions or right. the correct questions. Right. And, and so it's like you're obsessed with the wrong details. Right. Um, I think you also kind of hit on this idea that the incentives for small biotechnology companies in cancer drug development, very different than large companies who have reputation and are replete players. Right. These small companies may have one or two products, right. and they have put all their eggs literally in the one basket and they need that product to look successful and they are unwilling to engage in research that could threaten the appearance of that product exactly and that is not good for patients it's certainly not good for researchers Um, and that's led to this kind of challenge you faced the last thing i kind of wanted to ask you about was conferences now, uh, I, I've seen you at some conferences from time to time. You like, you've asked questions <laughs> of the speaker, um, uh, and sometimes they answer you, but not always. They don't always answer you. Um, 
that's not good when they can't answer you when you ask simple things or when someone asks simple things. Um, do you feel like in conferences that um, that some people, you know, we don't have to get into who, but some people are being pushed to present to large audiences and and maybe not entirely their fault, but the fault of people around them, they haven't had the adequate preparation that yes. it needs. Yes. I mean, I, I think, yes, I think that's, and I think pharmaceutical company studies are particularly liable to that. I mean, I think it's very difficult to be self-critical. Very, very difficult. It's people believe what they want to believe. And one of the things I find when you review papers, which I do a fair amount of, is that things that seem fairly basic aren't addressed. I mean, not, not even, this is beyond the stage of ash or something, you know. Um, they submit the paper, there are mm-hmm. things that they haven't addressed. Mm-hmm. And Blind a lot spots. Of, right, I mean, if you get up there and say something to me that would seem so basic, um, what proportion of the eligible people um, were treated? I've only heard that in one study, and that was Dr. Stone. So that was a Midas Thorin study. Mm-hmm. And everybody was screened for FLIP3, which was a condition for eligibility. Mm-hmm. This is the and cooperative then, group, yeah. uh, as simple as the Yeah, yeah, yeah. the ratified thing. And, yeah. um, um, and the way that it turned out was that something like 80% of the people with FLIP3 ITDs went on the study. Then the next question I asked, and he's probably my closest friend in medicine, very close friend. Um, we bond over sports. And the next question was, um, okay, were the people who didn't get this, obviously, in the placebo group, they got 7 plus 3, how did they compare with the people who got 7 plus 3 in placebo in the Minosaurin study? Did they do the same? They, they didn't collect the data. They don't know. Because if they did worse, yeah. then you'd say, these people on the study are not totally represented. Of course, yeah. But couldn't answer the question, and not his fault. It's just nothing the company encouraged them to look at. Uh-huh. Because what you're pushing on is the selection bias, even in a randomized trial. Of who's course, put out right. of uh-huh. course. And uh-huh. then the question is not only that's leaving out the universe of people who are not eligible to begin with, which right. is one of the things that we talked about right. today, right. which in solid tumor studies, there's a November 2017 JCO issue that was largely devoted to that, and it was pointed out that in the Kaiser Permanente population, over half the people with um, lung and colon cancer, or maybe only half the people with breast cancer when they develop those cancers, qualified for clinical trials. Right. I think um, you know one of the points you were making that I thought was very astute was that you argued, um, and something that we've argued kind of in a different language, but the way you put it is you think almost all approvals should be conditional. Yes. And conditional, you mean, even if it's a randomized trial that's well done, well conducted, mm-hmm. robust benefit, there are a lot of people you didn't include in your study. Mm-hmm. And you have some obligation to answer this question for patients and for doctors and for everybody. Does your product work well in those other groups of people? Right. Now, you could say, I, yes. Now, what somebody could say is, yeah, Eli, you know, you're really inconsistent because, okay, now you're saying you want this randomized trial, and nobody more than you would speak out about, I don't want to give somebody 7 plus 3, it stinks. So now you want to make them do that some more. And that's a very valid point. But what I would say is there are many ways to do randomized trials, and to me, maybe the best way is what people call adaptive randomization. Where basically you say, okay, we put whatever, a few people in the study, and if it looks like one arm is much better than another, then we adjust the randomization probabilities. And we keep doing that repeatedly. 
And yes, it's true because you won't have equal numbers in each group. The power won't be this optimal. But it's to me, it's an effort between having a study that's perfectly balanced and one that pays some kind of uh, regard to what's going on in the actual study. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so but, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily require the study to be one to be one randomized, one you to one. three to one, or maybe even better adaptively randomized where you change as you go on. But yeah, I do think there needs to be some kind of follow-up because the fear is, is that it will be used and no one will ever find out. Yeah, it's almost a, it's a certainty it will be used because doctors use things that are in the tool Absolutely. bag. Um, but I think I think the principle is, no matter how you do it, the, the sort of the philosophical principle is, is that... Um, you know, we need to a- ask and answer if this product works the same in people who didn't enroll mm-hmm. on the study. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things we wrote a few years ago was we wrote a paper in JAM Oncology called Overall Survival as a Surrogate Endpoint. And our argument was very similar to your argument, which is that we think of response rate and EFS or PFS as surrogate endpoints. They stand in for what we care about. Right. But an overall survival in a idealized efficacy clinical trial of of, of sort of um, very selected patients, that's a surrogate for the endpoint you care about in the real world population of people that you and I have to take care of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we should treat it as sort of a conditional approval and mm-hmm. that sort of strategy. Yeah, no, I think I think the approval should be conditional. And um, because, you know, it's funny, and I just thought of this, is I mean, in science, one of the things is you have to repeat experiments. Right. And so that's the least you can do. I mean, um, is to repeat it in a population that you didn't consider to begin with. Right. Um, and I think that should be a requirement. And you made this point um, well during your talk that in Ratify, the Mitostorin study, there was an age eligibility criteria. You couldn't be over the age of, what was it, 60? Yeah. And uh, in the serafinib 7 plus 3 trial, which is a negative study, um, the EFS benefit that we did see was only in the younger than 60 right. age group. Right. So the natural question is, when I have a 65-year-old patient who's coming to a foot 3 ITD, getting induction therapy, and I'm reaching for mitostorin, which I think many, many doctors are, I don't have randomized trial data to support mm. that choice. Right. I have this suggestion from right. the serafinib study right. that maybe those people aren't benefiting. Right. Right. And there's no ongoing effort to answer that right. question. If you wrote a paper. Yeah. People would reject it in a minute. They'd say, what? There's no data. You're doing something without any data at all. Reject immediately. Mm -hmm. But this is what we do. This is what we do. This is what we do. And I don't think that's a very good idea. And, you know, I think the FDA, never mind my thoughts about who should make these decisions, because people would say, yeah, maybe you're right, but, but you could say it maybe a little differently, but um, uh, maybe you're right, but but it doesn't really matter because it's not going to change. But I think the FDA really should say, um, okay, we're going to require these follow-up trials. It Mm -hmm. has to be conditional. Um, And yes, the counter-argument would be, okay, it's going to cost companies more money to make these, to do these trials. The drugs will be even more expensive. And yes, that's true. But to me, that's a small cost compared to giving things to people where you have no idea whether they work or not. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, another way to kind of think about it is, um, you know, in this country, we're spending a trillion dollars on healthcare at a national level. And a sizable chunk of that healthcare is on things like this, uncertain yeah. things. Yeah. Um, if you were running a business, if you were a corporation and you were the CEO of the corporation and you were spending this huge <laughs> yearly spending. You'd want some accountability. You'd want some accountability. And yeah. you'd say, like, look, if we can sort out 
hundred million dollars here, twenty million dollars right. there. Right. Um, right. With a simple study, right. it's in our incentive to do that because if we right. find that twenty percent of these things right. are not correct, we're going to save money. Right. Um, but of course, mm-hmm. you don't get that from bureaucracies. You made the point: bureaucracies perpetuate bureaucracies. Yeah, exactly, they do, and, and, and particularly in the current climate. Mm-hmm. I mean, wow! If the FDA is not going to is going to allow Boeing to approve their own airplanes, <laughs> yeah. then what else are you going to expect? They're going to not. There's not going to be very many questions asked. I think it's the next step: is that companies will will approve their own drugs. Uh, um, well. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, and no, about I enjoyed this. it. I like talking about it. I think they're really important issues, and um, um, yeah, I enjoyed it. Of I, all I the things, it. of all the things you say, I think you know if there's one takeaway message because a lot of people listen to this are young uh, investigators. I think um, you know I have to echo your point, which is that what would I encourage them? I would say. Um, they should actually try to do a few projects by themselves. And these projects, they're not gonna get published in New England Journal of Medicine. No. They're not gonna be published no. in The Lancet. But that's okay, because you learn much more yes, about you do. research. Um, yes, you do. When you try to ask one of these questions and yes, do it you yourself. Do. And you learn how the data is so difficult to interpret and how much data is missing. Um, you know, I mean, the patients didn't feel like coming back, so you don't know their survival time. There are all these things that that these answers are very, very capable of. There are no clear answers, mm-hmm. and um, yet so many things we'd like to believe there are clear answers to. Transplant is automatically better than chemotherapy, maybe, but you know, um, but still the same prognostic factors apply. Um, so the differences are much less than they're often felt to be. You see these conferences, and there are these people. Oh, he has to have a transplant, or you know, or no, it would be terrible. But the data really are not that compelling that you should really feel that strong one way or another. Yeah, can I wanted to ask you about this? You raised this point. I have forgotten about it, which was that um, um, when you look at a disease. If there's certain prognostic variables that matter, say, you know, certain cytogenetic factors for an AML, of course, we know poor prognostic, good prognostic, okay. Um, you develop a novel therapy, um, and if, if in the face of that novel therapy, those prognostic factors remain prognostic, <laughs> as, and, and um, that's telling you something like um, that this therapy may be great, but it isn't transformative, no. um, and and it's it's quite in, it's quite an interesting thing. Like if transplant, which is supposed to be, you know, of course, this graft-rich leukemia effect. Yeah. Um, why should that distinguish among cytogenetics? Right. Uh, but yet it does. Right. Exactly. It, and the most obvious example is this MRD. So, it's known that if you have MRD going into transplant, it makes things much worse, and. But what is MRD? Yeah, yeah, what does MRD say? MRD says MRD says the chemotherapy was not optimal. Yeah. So suboptimal chemotherapy leads to suboptimal transplant and vice versa. Better tr- chemotherapy leads to better transplants. So what are we missing? Yeah. As you point out, there's this GVL, but something is being lost. And what that is, I don't think anyone knows. But I think it's something to consider, you know, in our conferences, you have these back and forth arguments, oh, you know, and it, it's not that clear cut. And, you know, and it's, you know, there's this 
movie I really liked, Annie Hall, and basically um, uh, the Woody Allen character says, you know, it's like the difference between the horrible and the miserable or something <laughs> like that. And it, it's, you know, it's what it really is. I mean, you're arguing about things that really are, the real question is, can either be made better, not right. which is best. And that's true with these randomized studies, like we were saying in Europe. Okay, so they're going to spend 600 patients four years to see if 7 plus 3 is better than 10 days decided to be in older people with AML. Fine. But the truth is, that is that really the comparison you really, is that what the question you really care about? Isn't the question can either be made better? And to spend that much effort to do this, I not wouldn't be my idea what hmm. I would want to do. Well, I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. Okay, it's been a pleasure sure. To have you. Yeah, I'll and be curious to hear myself speak. Oh yeah, well we'll send you we'll send you the link, <laughs> and uh, I think it'll be of great interest uh, to the audience. I hope so. You know, um, uh, there have been. Um, uh, I just wanted a few listeners to know um, we've got a few listeners of Dana Farber who I have a great deal of respect <laughs> for. Um, but one of the things that we got in a little uh, disagreement about was the venetoclax approval, and uh, I just want the record to state that no. um, that Dr. Esty is uh, shares my criticism of it. So yeah, no, I mean I think it's an interesting drug. Mm-hmm. Nobody could gain say that, but I think to be blind to some of these points is, you know, is, is, is optimal. Um, and yeah, I could certainly see how patients would want to get it. It's an exciting drug. And, you know, would I have approved it? I don't know. But the one thing I do know is that I would have Condition the approval on answering some of these questions. Yeah, and uh, in the Videoclax case, it I guess there is a conditional approval. One thing that interestingly happened What's yesterday. It's conditional on randomized control trial of Venetoclax Aza. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Plus or mi- uh, Aza plus or minus and Venetoclax. But then the question is, of who course. are the patients uh, and are they unfit? Well, then this kind of thing. Yeah, so. it needs a, another condition which is detested beyond. Right. And just yesterday we had FDA put a hold on a Venetoclax trial, which well, is veni- myeloma. Myeloma, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, increased death despite the fact better responses and better PFS but yet almost a doubling of death. Right. Uh, so we'll see what shakes out there. I think venetoclax is interesting because, um, you know, everybody uh, has some preclinical rationale for why they want to test it in their cancer. And, and that just has to do with the fact that BCL2 is sort of... Yeah, every uh, cancer. Every cancer, yeah. When all the pathways feed to BCL2, right. you can make a justification. So, you know, um, for these drugs that hit um, parts of molecular uh, cascades that are ubiquitous or shared widely, those drugs are get tested everywhere. Um, right. And similarly, you I know, mean, in the years after imatinib, uh, people tested imatinib. People, we forget, but we tested imatinib. A lot of things. A lot of things. Solid tumor, you know, irrational things. Uh, to my knowledge, only two or three things ever had yeah. rationale. Yeah. No, I think, to me, I just cannot believe that something that targets one thing, BCL2, is ever going to cure AML. I just don't believe the AML cell is that stupid. I don't believe that it's that evolutionary simple. Simple. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Esty. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure was mine. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? 
Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>